Today's Old Testament reading can be found in the book of Genesis, chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. That can be found on page 44 of your pew Bible. God's good purposes. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. And from the New Testament, we find in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, these words. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And to those whom he called, he also justified. And to those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's the very words of God. Thanks be to God. I want you to imagine, those of you who are parents, um, some of us have uh, children who are just leaving the home, uh, almost adults or adults. Um, some of us have very small children, and, uh, and we're so used to directing them, to leading them, to giving them their opinions, right? If I want your opinion, I'll give it to you, right? And then um, imagine for a second that your child comes to you and says, Mom, Dad, I had a dream last night. And, and the dream was that, that you, mom and dad, bowed down to me. And all my ten brothers bowed down to me. <laughs> okay, don't, don't jump into your normal reaction to pound the daylights out of them, right? But, I mean, that would be pretty precocious, would it not? That would be, that would be pretty stunning for your child to come say, hey, this is the guy we're going to be spending the next eight weeks with, Joseph. This amazing uh, man, uh, we'll spend most of our time in his manhood, but this, this person who understood and was not afraid to say what God was doing in his life. Did you see what, as Tom was reading, what happened at the end of his life? 
He wept. And his brothers bowed down to him. His brothers bowed down. I wish I had thought of this a week ago when my sisters were here. I would have tried that on them and see if it worked myself. I'm still tasting the mud pies that I chewed on when they were younger. Um, wow. Wow. We have this extreme privilege of, of looking at the amazing story of a man named Joseph. And I want you to, to dig deep with me over the summer into this person's life. I'm going to try and give you some justifiable reasons why that would be a good idea in the, in the coming weeks. But, but today I'd just like to ask you to trust me for that. Consider next week spending uh, uh, some time in Genesis 37. Can you say that? Genesis 37. I'm not trying to be pedantic. I just know that sometimes when we say something like that, it lodges in our memory. We're going to start next week with Joseph's childhood. But today I get this extreme privilege of, of reintroducing to you and, and for some of you for the very first time to introduce to you this man who, who God used so powerfully over a thousand years before the time of Christ to reveal his sovereign purposes. Can I do that? God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts today would be uh, honoring and bring you glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me start just by introducing some of you. And I actually printed this paragraph in your bulletin in, in case this is the first time you're encountering this particular Joseph. But I can, I can try and summarize his whole story in one paragraph. Joseph was the favored son of his father, Jacob. Jacob was the one who wrestled with God and God changed his name to literally the one who wrestles with God or Israel. He was one of the favored sons. He was the favored son of his father, Jacob. And when he enters the stage of biblical history, in other words, in chapter 37 of Genesis, he's 17 years old. 17 years old. I'd just love right now to go off on a tirade about how important it is, 17-year-olds, to not think that you need to wait. I was listening to a powerful um, teaching yesterday about how we have skipped from, we have, um, we have included, excuse me, in the life cycle this thing called adolescence, which is like a pass on adulthood for a period of time. Joseph had no such pass. He had no such pass. In the Bible, we go from childhood to adulthood. And, and uh, Joseph is an amazing story of that exact transition. Because his brothers hated him for reasons like I shared with you earlier, dreams that he had and shared, he was sold as a slave and taken into Egypt. And after being falsely accused of rape in Egypt, he was imprisoned with no hope of getting out. But because he correctly interpreted Pharaoh's dream, he became second in command, the prime minister of Egypt. And eventually, he welcomed his family to Egypt, which preserved the line of promise that had started with his great-grandfather, Abraham. Wow. Wow. Let me summarize it again. Because of this 17-year-old that we're meeting today, God saved his people and save the most powerful nation on earth at that time, the nation of Egypt, very possibly save the whole Mediterranean area. So his story can be told in one paragraph, but, but let's try and put his story in perspective here a little bit if we can. If you know four events 
and four personalities, you'll have a, a, a basic structure of the book in which we find the story of Joseph. You'll have a basic structure of the book of Genesis. Let's start with Genesis 1 through 11 and four great events. I'm just trying to put context for you so you can see where God has placed this, uh, this story of Joseph. Everything in those first 11 chapters of Genesis can be summarized with the, with the idea of um, creation, the first major event going on right there, fall, creation, and the fall. And then uh, we also find the flood, God's judgment on the fall. And lastly, this amazing story of, uh, of God's judgment on people through the language is the story of the tower. So, four major stories going on in the first 11 chapters. Each, any one of them, fully worthy of your full attention. God does not mess around. Every word of the Bible has profound meaning for us. But in the big picture, at 30,000 feet, those four stories govern the first 11 chapters of Genesis. But as we move into chapter 12, we, we, we move from stories of things like creation and the fall to individual people. We see the story of Abraham, this, this amazing man. Oh, I wish we could just spend time now, but I'm going to trust that, that as I tickle your interest in that, you'll go back there. The story of this, this man in his 85 years old believing the promise of God that he would not only have children at 85, but that his children would be as, as plentiful as the sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky. I mean, it's as ridiculous to him then as it is to you or I now. But we heard those amazing words. Abraham believed God. He believed God. And it was reckoned to him. It was counted to him as right relationships. It was counted to him as righteousness. So I want to anchor that just for a second, what we're talking about, Abraham. God said, after the flood, after the judgment, after God repenting of, yes, he says repenting there, repenting of destroying the earth, God starts with one person who would believe him. One person who would trust God. He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And through you, are you ready for this? I said just a moment ago that through Joseph, he saved two nations. Through you, Abraham, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. And, and God began a line that has resulted in three major world religions. But a, a line for those of us who are, are trusting that Jesus Christ is God's Savior, trusting in Jesus Christ, we're children of Abraham. We carry that legacy of blessing. Not only does God say, because of Jesus Christ, I will bless you, but uh, through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. That's what's so fun wherever you went, Vasily. That's what's so fun about, um, about seeing. Vasily ministered to college students here from all over the world. If you ever went to dinner with Vasily while he was here, he had people from all different nations with him. And, then the, and guess what? Some of them came to know Christ and they went back home. And this tour that he just did was visiting some of those people who had gone back into it. Did you hear that? Wow, it was, it was so easy to trust, surrounded by loving people who also trust Jesus Christ. But now I'm back in a country where only 2% of the people 
uh, are followers of Christ. I feel like a fish out of water now. And, 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 and Vasily was able to encourage him and, and, and affirm what God had been doing in his life. And we have this missionary in Japan. We have several, but we have this one now that came here and now has gone back to his home country. He's a blessing to the nation of Japan. What nations will we bless? The call of Abraham is this profound call on our lives as well. But it didn't stop there with Abraham. Abraham got the second most significant portion of Genesis all by himself. So that's the Holy Spirit going, this person is important. There's stuff in his life that will be important for your life. But the story continues. You, you remember that, that uh, when Abraham believed God, he told his wife, and even though Abraham had laughed when God first told him, and she laughed when, when, he, when Abraham told her, um, God gave them a son and in their old age, a hundred years old, and commanded them to name him, guess what? Laughter. Isaac. And the second major figure there in Genesis is Isaac. Just amazing story of God's faithfulness. Isaac had a son named Jacob. And, and Jacob was a rat. He was, he was a mess. His very name meant a usurper, one who would, who would um, kiss your babies and steal your wallet while he was doing it, right? And, uh, and uh, you can see in his family lineage where he, gets that, where he gets that from. But God took this rat. Excuse me, that's not a biblical term in there. I'm sticking that one in all by myself. And, and, um, and by the river Jabbok, he wrestled all night long until his will was broken. And God asked Jacob and said, Jacob, what is it that you really want? And, and Jacob said, I want you to bless me. All his life, he had wrestled for God's blessing, the very thing that God had wanted to give him from the very beginning. And so God put Jacob's hip out of order, and the rest of his life, he would limp. And he limped back to his family, and he had a small son named Joseph at that time. If I remember correctly, Joseph was six years old at this time. And Dad came limping up to camp. It's Dad, what's the matter? I'm making this part up. What's the matter with you, Dad? What happened? And, and, and Jacob got to tell his son Joseph, I wrestled with God and God won. And, and God's promise was passed on to, to his children, to Jacob's children, in particular, the one we're going to be studying. Now you can see where Joseph fits in to this whole story. Uh, Joseph was the 11th son of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And, and Genesis 37 through 50 are the rest of that story, the story of Joseph. Let's, let's take a closer look at that story, if I could. Um, I'm going to just point out a few details. And today, I apologize, today is just kind of an orientation day to kind of get you more familiar. Honestly, again, to tease you into uh, becoming a part of the story, of reading it and finding yourself in the story. But... But let's note a couple of observations from Joseph's story, if we can. First of all, Joseph's story, as we mentioned earlier, is the longest one in the book of Genesis. And there's eight main things going on, four stories and four characters. What does it mean that God allowed more space to Joseph's story than to anyone else? He has the same numbers we saw last week, the same number of chapters dedicated to him, 14 
But there's in actual verses, there's 25% more there about Joseph than even about Abraham, the father of the faithful. So, so I'm just saying, if you see those clues in Scripture, if you see that God is spending a lot of time telling you something, then, then there's probably something very important for you. Maybe, just maybe, this is what it is. The life of Joseph is the greatest and clearest picture of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. It's the greatest and clearest picture of Jesus Christ. There's amazing parallels. Can I tease you with a couple of them? Between Joseph and Jesus. One author found 101 connections between them. Both Jesus and Joseph were innocent, both chosen and beloved by their father, both sent by their fathers to see their brothers, both sold as slaves. Like Jesus, Joseph cast between two criminals, remember in the, in the prison, pronouncing salvation of one and death to the other. Joseph forgave those who sought his ruin, just like Jesus did. And in the lives of both Joseph and Christ, it was the wicked plot of those who would have been most likely to accept them that ultimately led to the salvation of all who would come. There's something remarkable about this man. There's something that God wants to put into our understanding from his story. And I think we'll learn a lot more about Jesus as we open our hearts to the story of Jesus. So the life of Joseph is this clearest and greatest picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. But to understand his story, to understand the story of Joseph, you've got to go to the end of the story. And the end of the story helps you understand the middle. Now, you have a tremendous advantage that, that Joseph didn't have. right? You can turn to the back of the book. You can read the end of the story. You, you know how this is ultimately going to turn out. I learned that lesson I shared with you before in middle school math class. In middle school math class, it dawned on me one day that half of the answers to the math problems are in the back of the book. Anybody else discover that? Right? Well, well all of the answers of our journey are in the back of the book, too. I'm speaking right now of Revelation as we see that God wins, as we see that His Word is true, as we see that no no obstacle thrown up against Him can prevail, we see that God's glorious purposes are going to be worked out. But you know that same principle is true right here in the story of Joseph. You can go to the end of the story of Joseph, like you just did a moment ago, and, and find out what, what's happening. Find out what God wants you to understand. Do you remember what Joseph said to his brothers? You intended to harm me. I'm reading now out of the NIV. Tom read earlier out of, um, out of the ESV. You intended to harm me. Another version puts it, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. To accomplish what is being done now. The saving of many lives. So Joseph put his life in perspective by the statement at the end of it. He got it. He got it right at the time he, he could have pounced on his brothers. Right at the time as the second most powerful man probably in all the earth. At that time when he could have pronounced judgment on his brothers. Instead he pronounced grace. He had something some insight that if we can grasp it, it will transform our lives as well. 
Joseph understood that God is sovereign. I know that's a new word for some of us. Some of you explored it in Sunday school classes earlier today. It means that God has absolute power and authority. And, 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 and God is sovereign over every event of our lives and every event that happens in His world. So, so Joseph, through, through trial and error, we're going to walk with him through that over the coming days, Joseph learned that God can be trusted. That God is large and in charge and worthy of our trust. And that put his life in perspective. But Joseph experienced a, a powerful truth that you heard again now from Paul in Romans chapter 8 as well. Did you hear it as it went by so fast? And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, Paul says. Those who've been called according to his purpose. That's our memory verse for today. Many of you have already committed that to memory. It's a powerful one. I have to be honest with you. It's one that's been used and abused. That people have been trite with it. They have just said, oh, your dog got run over. Well, God works all things together for good. That didn't help a lot when your dog got run over, right? When, when, when bad things happen, people are tempted to just say something short without understanding the magnitude of it. But I want to ask you to push through that. I want to ask you to look deeper into this and, and see the sovereignty of God in it. We've unpacked this together, so I'm going to just briefly summarize what we learned together many months ago as we studied this passage together. We talked about what it didn't say. Do you remember that? What it doesn't say. It does not say that everything that happens is good, right? It doesn't say that. And, and, and Joseph came to learn that there are bad things that happen in Joseph's life, and there's no other way to put it. There are people that, that promised him things and it didn't happen. There are brothers that betrayed him. There are people that tried to kill him. There are people that falsely accused him of things that he didn't do. It didn't, it didn't just baptize all those things and say, well, those things are good. The scripture is not saying that. It also doesn't say that God works for the good of everyone. This is radical. And some of you just went, what? Because in our culture, we've come to this point where we started to think and repeat that, oh, God's always working for everyone's good. That's not what this scripture says. Right? This is important, you guys. Our relationship with God is just that. It is a relationship. It is a partnership. And, and, and if you turn your back on that partnership, God is not going to work for good for you. You're going to run into the natural consequences of your turning your back. Is God good? Absolutely. But, but unlike uh, many in our culture right here, God understands there's consequences and justice requires those consequences. So it doesn't say that God works for the good of everyone. What it does say is that God works for the good of those who love him. Who love him. Remember that? Romans 8.28, who live their lives according to His purpose. So you can, you can short-circuit this whole message right here by hearing those questions. Do you love God? We've talked over and over again that probably 90% of people in Evansville would say, yes, yes, I love God. Um, well, Jesus said, if you love me, you obey me, right? If you love me, You'll follow my word. Whether that means um, 
uh, trusting in his commandments or receiving his forgiveness, as Pastor Bill invited us to a few moments ago. Um, if, we, if we love God, we will do what God asks us to do. But do you see that second part too? And, and this is what I'm hoping to unpack throughout our eight-week series here. Not only does he work for the good of those who love him, but for those who live their lives in accordance with his purpose. And we don't have to go far in Romans 8 to figure out what that purpose is. It might be a surprise to some of you. Lord willing, it'll be a comfort to you, but it's in the next verse, right? For those whom God foreknew, or a better translation would be foreloved, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. What is God's purpose for you? It's to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Why? Because people need to see Jesus. They need to see God with hands and feet and with mouths of encouragement. They need to see love with flesh on. And so God's great plan was that that He would reveal Himself and His love to people and those people would trust Him and in trusting Him, as we saw in Pentecost last week, in trusting Him that they would be filled with His presence, the Holy Spirit, and everywhere they went, even Salem, Oregon, Tokyo, Japan, or Bogota, Colombia, where another one of our missionaries is, or southern France, everywhere we went, even across the street, across the cubicle, across the hall, everywhere we went, the, pres- the representation of Christ would go as well. So who live their lives according to His purposes, to be conformed to the image of Christ, to fulfill the call of Abraham, to be a blessing to all the nations, but to also fulfill the great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. Joseph experienced that powerful truth. I want to invite you to experience it in these coming weeks as well. But Joseph also showed us an amazing thing, the human part of this. God is faithful, amen? And, and, and much of our lives is, has been spent in learning that God can be trusted, that God will be faithful. His Word says that over and over again. But Joseph also shows us that our faithfulness counts as well. Joseph shows us faithfulness to God no matter what's going on in our lives. It's really a, a picture of the providence of God working in all things for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. What we find here is that, that, that when we trust in God, no matter what challenges we face, we can have this confidence that He will never leave us or forsake us. We can have this confidence that not only is He sovereign over those circumstances, but very likely He has led us into those circumstances. I'm getting way ahead of myself here because we'll explore this in the coming weeks, but I can't help but wonder how many times Joseph must have thought, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? He gave me all these revelations, these dreams which showed your plan for my life. And boy, this just does not look like it. And for those of you who find yourself, as Pastor Bill said, in the cistern right now, in the pit right now, God's asking you to believe. 
But he is Lord even in that pit. So those of you who find yourself enslaved to other people's purposes that, that don't seem to be the call of God in your life, can you trust that God is sovereign over those circumstances? For those of you who are living out the consequences of other people's choices, in particular, other people's actions, like Joseph with Potiphar's wife, can you trust that God is sovereign even over those circumstances? For those of you who are in, how do we sing it, in a desert place right now, in a wilderness, wilderness literally meaning that place where there's no word from God, where you're wondering like Jesus in his crucifixion, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To be able to trust that God's sovereign purposes are still being worked out. Joseph is amazing. Joseph is a type, a a pre-type of Jesus, amazing in his faithfulness to God, no matter what circumstances he faced. Well, I want to encourage you. What looks sometimes like, um, like vulnerability to just circumstances at your feet, God can use to absolutely transform your life, to, to transform your circumstances, to transform the legacy of your life. I want to invite you to risk faithfulness to God, even when you can't see his hands. Are there some life lessons for us? I'm, it's way early in the story to be doing this, but, but let me just toss some out there again, maybe just to tease you a little bit into a deeper engagement in the story. First of all, we have to someday come face to face. Well, let's, let me put that differently. We will come face to face with the sovereignty of God. That's not the question. We will. The question is whether we'll be dashed to pieces on that sovereignty or whether that's that foundation stone, that cornerstone, the sovereignty of God through Jesus Christ will become the stepping stone into understanding him more. We will come face to face with the absolute power and authority of the living God. Joseph came face to face with it and he believed one simple truth. God is in control of everything, of everything, of everything. Oh, my gosh. Everything. Even those situations that, that out of your own protection, out of a desire to guard your heart, you comforted yourself saying, that wasn't God. You comforted yourself and you said, that, that's just the, the circumstances around. God hates that. Um, you know what? God was in the pit. God was in the prison. God is sovereign over anything. That's, I think that's why he wept when his brothers came. Because as they bowed before him, he saw, in spite of all those circumstances which have begged him, almost required him to deny God's sovereignty, Joseph was able to see that he was faithful that God was true. He had not lost control. That He was actually working all things out for His purposes. I invite you, risk. Risk it. And, and, and when I say acknowledge, I don't mean give intellectual assent to. I'm very good at that. I just kind of say, okay, I'll, I'll buy that for a second. And really what I'm doing is borrowing it for a second. Knowledge in the Bible is not about intellectual assent. Knowledge in the Bible is about experiencing 
experiencing God. So I invite you, experience His sovereignty. God very likely has already brought things to your mind where they press you to trust the sovereignty of God into it. Live into it. Put yourself back in the story. I know you had to get out of it. I know you had to to psychologically step back because it was too great to think about, but trust God. Trust God. And risk re-entering. Re-entering His story. Secondly, I want to just encourage you, choose responsibility. And don't get me started on this, but but because I, I sound like an old crotchety guy here, but I think one of the great failures of our culture is that we have, for some reason, taken away individual responsibility, right? We've, we've exalted victimization. We, we've exalted this idea that if something bad happens to you, it's somebody else's fault and there's nothing you can do about it. You're just simply a victim. I'm sorry, Joseph never did that. He never did that. He didn't understand what God was doing in his life, but he refused to be victimized by it. He trusted God's sovereignty in the midst of it and where he could, he took responsibility. He lived, if I could, if you'll forgive me, he lived the Christ life in the pit. By the way, Jesus quoted the Psalms from the pit when when he was uh, in his passion. Joseph met God in the pit. Joseph took responsibility in the midst of that. Joseph met God in the prison. Joseph took responsibility in the midst of that. And let me just play with words, English words for just a second. Responsibility is simply the ability to respond, right, in a way that would honor God. When you find yourself in those desert places, when you find yourself in those prisons of your own making or someone else's making, when you find yourself in the pit, choose responsibility. Do you remember Viktor Frankl? I'm sorry we quote him a lot. Um, but he, he was a, a, a death camp survivor. And the different thing about Viktor Frankl was that he was self-aware in the midst of that, of what he was feeling and what he was thinking. He was aware of those around him who were dying just by giving up. Just by giving up. And, and later, when he was, when he was liberated from from the death camp, he, he wrote uh, several books uh, describing that experience. But one of the things that he said in one of those was this. The last of all great human freedoms is to choose one's response to any given set of circumstances. I know that went by fast. Is it up there? The last of all great human freedoms is to choose your response. Have you ever heard that expression, pain is inevitable but misery is optional? That's an expression of the same thing. You can choose how you're going to respond. You have the ability to respond even in the negative circumstances that have happened. And awful things have happened to some of us, and and the consequences of those things have been hard. Many of you have experienced broken families. Many of you are victims, would be victims, should you choose, of, of, um, of addictions of other people whose addictions have caused you great suffering. Many of us are, 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 uh, um, are addicts ourselves. I'm, I'm stumbling because um, I, I just cannot survive in the morning without coffee. I know that's, that is an addiction. I'm not judging anybody for addictions. I'm addicted. I'm an addicted person as well. Many of you were 
victims of much more insidious addictions. And I don't even want to say I'm in a church service, but you know what I'm talking about. And, and you have suffered as a result of that. Do you want to spend the rest of your life suffering? God is giving you, like Joseph, through Jesus, the ability to respond differently. The ability to choose a different path, to trust in God's plan for your life and to live out of God's provision, not out of someone else's abuse. I don't mean to, I don't mean to tread on your emotions here, but I know those things are real. And I know many of us here have experienced those kinds of things. Don't become a victim. Choose to break the cycle. Take responsibility with God's strength, with God's power. Take responsibility for a new way of life, a way that trusts not in your circumstances or in what's been done to you, but instead in what's been done for you by Jesus Christ, what God is doing for you through Him. I want to encourage you, don't only, not just acknowledge God's sovereignty, not just choose responsibility, but... Even if you can't do those things yet, take, take the long look. Take a giant step back. I share with you when we named Mount Karen, our family has that pattern of, of if we climb something, we get to name it. And so I'm going to climb Oak Hill one of these days and rename it. But Mount Karen is in Southern California. And I remember when Karen and I got to the top of that thing and we're looking down on the freeway a couple thousand feet below and the little tiny cars running around and all those kinds of things. And thinking, where are they all hurrying to? You know? For whatever reason, God just gave us perspective for a moment on the busyness and the, and the portions of life that don't really matter in the big scheme. Take the long look. It's hard, but take a giant step back and try and see your life. Try and see your circumstances from God's perspective. Very possibly, this is the circumstance that's going to lead you to that place where you can fulfill God's greatest purpose for your life. But you've got to step back. It's especially important for us who are parents right now. Because, because the actions that we take toward our, par- our children, and, and some of you grandchildren, some of you great-grandchildren, are going to dramatically affect the generations who will come, take the long look. Step back from the crisis. Trust God in the midst of it. And, and view it from his perspective. A couple of weeks ago, um, come on up, worship team, if you would. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we reminded ourselves of when every other truth is elusive, when everything else is leaving you behind, something that you can anchor yourself in rock solid. Do you remember that? We, um, we quoted the African proverb, right? God is good. All the time. And I am His witness, right? And I am His witness. Last thing I just want to invite you to, right up front, We haven't walked yet through the pit. We haven't walked through the cistern, through the imprisonment, through the false accusations. We're going to do that in the days to come. But right here up front, remember the goodness of God. If God were not good, then I would not be challenging you to trust Him. If God were not good, then sovereignty would be a weapon which He would be using against Him. But the harsh reality, or the great reality, is that He is good. God has your best interests in mind. And even when you're not good, 
He remains good. And He offers you that relationship. Now pray with me, would you? God, thank You that You never leave us or forsake us. Sometimes we have to cling to those words, God, completely by faith because we find ourselves in the cisterns. We find ourselves imprisoned. We find ourselves falsely accused. We find ourselves in the desert place with no hope, no vision, God, of Your provision. But these words give us comfort. You are good. God, wash over us right now. For those who are coming face to face with your goodness, God, and, and feel their own brokenness, their own sin magnified as a result, grant us that mustard seed of faith to believe that it's not about us. It's about you. It's not about our lack of goodness. It's about your goodness. For those of us, God, who, who've been tempted to, to, to live into victimization, to, to say we're just, a, we're just a victim of all the things that have happened to us. God, help us with knowing you are going before us. Help us to stand in the midst of that, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the perfecter of our faith, to trust in His leadership in our life. And God, to hold on until your perfect plan for us is revealed. Now, thank you, God. Thank you that you are good and you are worthy of our trust. We love you and we entrust ourselves to your saving grace right now. In Jesus' name, amen.